sales are up even as prices rise. Can the good times for automakers last? Motley Fool Money starts now. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. I'm Deidre Bullard here with Motley Fool analyst Tim Byers. Tim, how are you doing today? Fully caffeinated, ready to go, Deidre. I love to hear it. Well, Tim, I think new car buying might be back. Some news out from the Wall Street Journal says we're looking at an estimated 13% rise in overall sales through the first half of the year. That's data from Ward's Intelligence. And people are paying more, according to data from J.D. Power. Average price is up 3% to $46,000 first half of the year. Oh, my goodness. What is driving this? Is this like leftover supply chain, pent-up demand? What's going on here? I mean, that's what it seems like. It, it does appear. So 7.7 million vehicles sold from January to June. That's according to Ward's intelligence. And the big winners were apparently, this is according to the journal, GM, Honda, Hyundai. Um, the, the thinking here appears to be that consumers have shown no reticence to slow their role on spending despite inflation worries. And so I think there's a bit of pandemic overload here. Like we just, we sort of got so battered by the pandemic that we want to get back to normal. And so you couple a replacement cycle, some easing of supply chain restrictions and just Americans desire for you know the next the next vehicle that is something that you know here in the states it's it's sort of one of those statement purchases that you make every once in a while and it's a fun statement purchase to make and that appears to be happening here Deidre I say one thing it's not a great time to buy a car because there is no incentive for your dealer to lower prices in any way so if you're going shopping for a deal forget about it you're not going to get one yeah, I wonder if that's going to be driving people back to used cars. You know, when we look at economics, it's always this cycle, right? And so we had people going to used cars during the pandemic because new cars weren't available. Now, used cars, people aren't as interested. Prices have gone down there a lot. All of a sudden, new cars are the new hotness again. We, we just keep kind of going through this, don't we? We do. And I mean, this will be a cycle that we go through, and then we may have some you know, a bit of, of an easing over the next couple of years. This is the kind of market where replacement cycles do help, do tend to drive buying in, in a way. But I, I would say this is probably sustained for the next six to six to 12 months. It's, a, it's an interesting replacement cycle. It will ebb and flow as it tends to do in in this kind of market i think you're right that they're you know for the people that either can't afford or do not want to spend these elevated prices for new cars it'll be an interesting time for for used vehicles and then we'll see i mean the only thing that this report didn't mention that i was hoping to see Deidre, is an uptick in sales of electric vehicles that doesn't now, there's other evidence elsewhere that I know we're going to talk about, about an uptick in, in electric vehicle sales. But that would have been the thing that really would have put this over the top to, to me. I, I would have been much more encouraged if this report had said, hey, 7.7 .7 million vehicles sold January to June. And of those, 7% were, 
were EVs. That would have been highly encouraging, but we just haven't seen that yet. So we're still waiting for it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you've set me up perfectly to talk a little bit about Tesla and their and, you know, it's interesting because they keep doing these incentives. It seems like it yes. might have worked, uh, you know, might have worked out in their favor. So they had uh, over 46,000 vehicles delivered for the second quarter. Uh, that was about 20,000 cars more than expected. But as a big but here, it produced more vehicles than it delivered by over about 13,000. You know, Tesla, they've kind of been build, 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 build because they just assume they'll sell it. Yep. Could they actually overproduce? Is, is that like a real thing at this point? Oh, I absolutely think it is. I mean, inventory has been rising faster than overall sales at, at Tesla. And so they absolutely could overproduce here. Now, to be fair to Tesla, they are doing the hard work of trying to seed the market in the U.S. for electric vehicles. They, I mean, they are the tip of the spear here. So no matter what you think about Tesla as a company, how it's managed, how great it is, whether or not you like the cars or dislike the cars, they're the tip of the spear that is helping lead the electric vehicle revolution here in the United States and elsewhere. So I can't really blame them too much for being aggressive in their production targets. But I'll tell you one thing, though, Deidre, if they continue to overproduce, if inventory does continue to outpace, sales, you do risk some inventory write-downs, you may uh, risk some deep discounting, and that's a, a factor here. One of the things I've been looking at, and actually not just me, um, I should give more credit to Alicia Alfieri on the investment team, who's been doing a lot of work on looking at Tesla gross profit per vehicle after you factor out the benefit from government subsidies, like on a pure basis. And that has been going down. And so given these numbers, and let, let's just be clear about what we're talking about here. Tesla filed an 8K. The overall numbers here is on production, the Model S and X, 19,489, delivered 19,225. So close, but not quite. The Model 3 and Y, 460,211 produced, 446,915 delivered. So overall, like you said, 479,700 produced, 466,140 delivered. So, you know, that's that's about uh, 13, almost 14,000 more. It's a lot more. There is a chance that Tesla is going to have to work out some inventory excess here. But I would caution that that is likely to be more of a short-term problem than a long-term problem. If they do have an overabundance of inventory, they can use things like discounting to, to get rid of it. The worry is they've been using so much incentives, so many incentives to create so much demand, and they're still overbuilding at, you know, where is the give in terms of price incentives? But, you know, we're going to have to watch this. I mean, you don't want to see gross profit per vehicle keep going down, 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 down. At some point, we'd like to see that reverse. Yeah, and the the incentives thing is interesting because, yeah, they have been doing that at the end of every quarter to kind of juice things. And they're not going to be able to do it, it seems like, in, in China as much because in Shanghai, there were 16 car companies. They took part in a ceremony at the China Automotive Forum. They agreed to a bunch of things in, 
in part to stabilize prices and avoid what they called abnormal pricing. I'm pretty sure that abnormal pricing was aimed at Tesla. Tesla was the only yes, was. foreign only foreign company there signing on this. So what does that mean for China and Tesla going forward if they can't if they don't have these incentives? They've got the gigafactory they're they're producing a lot. Is is that a big concern? Um well it means that I I look at this as a ceasefire in the price wars. It doesn't mean they have no leverage. I mean, Tesla is a big dog in China. And, you know, let, let's talk about where Tesla is. As a, as a market, China's overall uh, revenue for China has almost tripled from 2020 to 2022, from, you know, roughly $6.7 billion to $18.2 billion. So that's December 2020 to December 2022. That's huge. It's enormous. In the same period, United States, which is the biggest market here for Tesla, from $15.7 billion to $40.5 billion. So not quite growing at the same pace, although also growing briskly. So I do think Tesla has a lot of influence. It just means... I mean, I I hate to sound cynical on this, but it means that they can't kill Neo as fast as they would like to. I mean, really, that's a, they cannot bury Neo in price incentives and price them completely out of the market and destroy a local Chinese company to the degree that maybe they might have have wanted to. They have to be a little bit more competitive here, but they're still the big dog. They have a brand advantage. The Chinese government is well aware that Tesla's presence is important. Like you said, they've got the Gigafactory there. There's lots of reasons that Tesla wants to succeed in China, and China wants Tesla to succeed in its home territory here. So this is... Short term, yes, they lose a little bit of pricing leverage, but we should not for a second think that the Chinese government does not love Tesla and will not do whatever it takes to make them successful inside China. They really, really want Tesla to be successful in China. Which is interesting because right now we've in the, we're in this situation with some back and forth between the U.S. and China on things like chip technology and the cloud. How do we factor that in as as a risk? Is that any risk for, it seems like you just said, Tesla and, and the Chinese government, they seem to be in a great relationship, but there's this overarching conflict that seems to sort of be emerging here. Well, and um, let's, let's talk about this without making any kind of political statements here, because it would be too easy to make a political statement, but yes. Elon Musk has kind of separated himself from the US government in terms of his own, as the face of Tesla, his own dealings with the, the, the Chinese government and has been kind of a friendly face for the Chinese government. You can make of that whatever you want, but in terms of adding cover for his business in China, he is doing that by creating a, um, a partnership with the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese government. So I do think there's a there's a caginess to what uh, Musk has done in order to create some air cover for Tesla as a business that's entirely distinct 
from this sort of bare knuckles fight that we're seeing on trade between the U.S. and China. Tesla could still get caught up in it in ways that I really don't understand because I do not specialize in international trade law. But for the most part, what we, based on what we can see, Tesla's leadership is doing what it takes to create a, a cooperative relationship with with the Chinese government that is likely to be good for their ability to do business in that territory. Let's switch over and talk about GM a little bit. They're interesting because they had 90% sales gains for the quarter. 1.3 million vehicles sold. Only around 36,000 of that was EVs. You talked earlier about like wanting to have those EV numbers for overall. I I want GM to succeed. It looks like, you know, they're they've they, most of those sales were the Bolt. The Bolt is kind of going away as GM yep. plans to roll out its EVs on its Ultium platform. They've been promising. They, they're very excited about Ultium. It's taken a long time to get going. Uh, they're going to launch the Silverado on on Ultium, which, of course, you know people are more familiar with that brand name. They haven't had great success so far with the Lyric and uh, the Hummer EV that are on the Ultium, uh, Ultium platform. What do you think here? As as GM ramps up, is it is it game on? Well, you would hope that it's game on. I don't they know hope that it's game it, on. <laughs> they they hope it's game on. I hope it's game on because a more competitive market is better for consumers. Having said that, you know those thirty six thousand EVs is two point eight percent. That's two point eight percent of the you know the vehicles sold here. So that is not a lot. They have a long, long, long way to go to make a real dent here. It's not to say that they can't. And does one production line do it? There's a there's a lot that needs to be done in order to like you have to get proper distribution. You've got to get this out to consumers. You've got to market it in a way that's that's highly attractive. This is another area where, uh, at the risk of giving like I, I sounded some cautions about Tesla and gross profit per vehicle. Let's talk about where Tesla is really strong. They have a huge brand advantage and you cannot discount that. So even if GM, as good as they are at making cars, even if they get really good at making cars on their Ultium line and those cars are excellent cars, you still have to do a lot of work on the brand side to convince a consumer that buying a GM brand EV is comparable to or better than a Tesla brand vehicles. Because here's the thing that I think we know about Tesla, all things around it aside, it is a premium brand and it's a premium brand in EVs. And it's almost, it has a Coke-like attachment to EV. Tesla equals EV. When I think EV, the first thing I think is Tesla. And by occupying that place in my brain, I have an immediate market advantage. And that's not something that can be overcome with just a really good production line. So I do think that there's a lot of work for GM to do, but I think it's less on the production side, Deidre, and more on the brand and marketing side. You have to create real desire for the GM brand. We got to get back to the days where, like, here's what I'm looking for. I want it to have its Corvette moment, right? Mm. I want it to have its Corvette moment. When it has a Corvette moment, 
with a great EV sports car that is just mouthwatering that people want to buy, okay, now we're talking. But until we have that moment, I do think Tesla has a significant brand advantage. Well, I think what, what you said there is really significant is the difference between like GM being like, you like Silverado, look, it's now an EV versus right. it's an EV, you want an EV because of this particular EV and that's where, that's where Tesla's strength is. Right, exactly. Like we have made, and they've done it on both sides, the, you know, probably the most divisive vehicle I've ever seen in my life is the Cybertruck. I know people who <laughs> love it. I really do. I know people who like cannot wait to get their hands on this vehicle. And then I know people who are like, I don't know what this is. I'm not preparing for the zombie apocalypse. Get this away from me. But you know what's true about it is it, it creates passion both for and against. And if you're GM, you need to be creating passion for your vehicles. Well, one thing I feel I feel like I might be a little bit passionate about is I was promised flying cars in the future, Tim. Yeah, and yes, we were. <laughs> I have received no flying cars, but I may someday receive flying cars. The Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, they granted a company called Aleph Aeronautics uh, rights to test out essentially a flying car. Model A, nice nod to Ford there. They've got what they call an experimental special airworthiness certification. Certification basically allows them to test it out. Should I be excited? Is, is my flying car finally arriving? I mean, I hate to burst your bubble, but I, I, would, not get, <laughs> I would not get too excited about this too quickly. I mean, the, the more interesting market here for me, and there are public companies in this market, and I can give you, I can give you two of them, are uh, VTOLs. You know, so right. vertical takeoff and landing uh, vehicles that have are much more like air taxis. So there are two tickers I can give you: um, EVTL, EVTL. That is vertical aerospace. So they are a a newer. They came public via SPAC, uh, a newer maker of, of VTOLs. And then another one, which is ACHR, which is Archer Aviation. Archer Aviation. And they also are in the business of of VTOLs. And, and VTOLs are interesting in that you you have this idea of essentially an air taxi and, you know, city transportation and having something that is maybe a bit more affordable on a consumer basis, like if you had, I'm going to say like a 10-seater, right? Like a 10-seat vertical takeoff and, and landing air taxi that is a short-haul flight citywide um, that typically would have been served for billionaires who can afford to hire a helicopter, right? And it, yeah. it sort of displaces that market. I think it's very early for that market, and I would not go all in on these public companies. However, they are interesting. It is rule-breaking technology. I think it's much closer than flying cars. I want flying cars too, Deidre, but before we get to that, I'm a little more interested in having a look at the VTOLs. Yeah, the VTOLs are interesting. The one I've been following is Joby. They're also publicly traded. They just received approval from the FAA for uh, flight testing. So they're a little bit farther along in this. That stock's been 
kind of going nuts. And it's interesting because Joby's got some good partnerships. Uh, they're backed by Toyota. They've got a partnership with Delta to develop this kind of stuff. Yeah. If you're thinking about these, should you be looking at the partnerships as a potential sign? Is that is that a positive thing? Yes, but I think it's you should also think about it. And just for those who don't know, Joby is, is ticker J-O-B-Y. Yes. I think it's a little bit like a biotech where you have the partner that helps a small biotech uh, and it, it, it creates a revenue share. So there's, you know, they have a whole distribution partner. Um, the big pharmaceutical companies will often do that with small biotechs. So yes, but you don't want to get overexcited either. I think it's a decent sign. If I'm if I'm right, I believe that Archer also has a partnership with United. So yeah, that's a that's a decent sign. Um, but it it really doesn't guarantee anything because boy, you have to do a lot of work before you get a commercially approved you know route, and then you have to file flight plans with the FAA, and there's all sorts of things that must be done. But a partnership is is a decent sign, but it's a guarantee of nothing. <laughs> a guarantee of nothing. That 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 is true when you're looking at a lot of this. Well, I'm not going to get my flying car today, Tim. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Deidre. Was I buying a failed experiment? I chat with Dave Meyer, host of Bigger Pockets on the Market podcast, about the changing world of real estate investing. Let's talk a little bit about real estate investing and rentals, single family rentals, prices kept going up and up. Now we're seeing maybe a little bit of a slowdown. With real estate investing, it seems like investors are, you know, they're they're looking at their options, right? Because if prices are going down, maybe there's not a great uh, upside in a fix and flip. If they're holding, if they're doing the the BRRR thing and trying to buy and and hold, are they going to see rental prices increase? What are you seeing in that? I think there is still opportunity in real estate investing, pretty much in any type of environment, but the type of tactics that work definitely shifts. Um, to your point, uh, BRRR, which stands for buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat, basically a way of injecting capital into a deal, fixing it up, and then refinancing your money out so you can sort of recycle it, is no longer as attractive as an option. Flipping actually is really interesting right now because the prevailing logic is that it's less lucrative because home prices are correcting a bit. But what we see both anecdotally and in the data is that there are very good opportunities in flips right now because the nature of the correction we're seeing in the housing market is that what we would call a quote unquote stabilized asset, something that's fixed up, that is really nice, those prices are stable or actually going up right now. Meanwhile, things that need those renovations, that need a lot of work, are seeing a deeper correction. And so that creates a broader spread of opportunity for people who want to fix and flip. Um, so you, you can buy at a discount, but the price you can sell it at is not coming down as much. So, so that's one way you can make money. But I think generally most people on bigger pockets, at least, or most real estate investors are not flipping. They're mostly buying rental properties. And I think the increase in asset prices is for most investors 
mostly really considered a bonus, like at, at least at bigger pockets. We don't teach people to count on appreciation during their underwriting. Everyone sees housing prices go crazy, and yes, over time they have always trended upward in the U.S., but they actually don't grow that much faster than the pace of inflation. Um, it's like usually like one percent over the pace of inflation is the average. And so, as real estate investors, what we really care about more are the things that we can control because we are investors, but we are also entrepreneurs. Like we have to operate these businesses. It's not just like buying a a, a stock. So we care a lot more about cash flow, um, about value add. So you you can create and build equity by improving the quality of the property. Uh, there's something called amortization or loan pay down that can earn you um, a, a yield as well. And so those are the things that don't really go away um, in even in these in these types of correcting markets. That said, there's certainly more risk. You know, there, there's absolutely more risk in a, in a correcting market, and you need to account for that. But Actually, every single experienced investor I know is buying more now than they were a year or two ago. Interesting. So you mentioned that there is uh, that properties that need a lot of work maybe aren't as desirable. Do you think that is part of a sort of general shift of people not wanting a fixer up or not feeling like they're up to the task of, of maybe renovating a house? Yeah, I think there's a few things going on. One is we do see small to medium investors still pretty active, but we've seen some institutional investors leave the market over the last year who are doing a lot of these fix and flips, most notably the iBuyer groups, which was like Zillow sort of famously failed at that. Open Door has reported major losses on that. So we're seeing some players leave the market. I think the other thing is people are really burned by the supply chain and labor shortages during COVID that made it extremely difficult to renovate properties. I, I don't know how familiar you are, but there's like this whole saga with garage doors and you couldn't get them for six to nine months and you can't get a certificate of occupancy if you don't have a garage door. Um, you know, appliances were super hard. So I think people are less attracted to that um, right now. But if you're an experienced Flipper, um, you know, a lot of those supply chain kinks have been resolved. Labor is still tight, but a little less tight. Uh, and so for people who have the stomach for it, it still can be lucrative. Well, you, you mentioned the iBuyers. I've watched that. I've been fascinated by that whole saga. You know, we've got we've got Open Door and OfferPad. That those are about the only players left in the space. Is this a failed experiment or is this maybe necessarily going to continue on as a smaller part of the market? I think in its first iteration, it, it did sort of fail. Um, I just think they underestimated the complexity of the operations in a lot of ways. Um, having been a landlord for a long time, it's very difficult to systematize. Um, it, it's not something that uh, you could do super easily and that grew really fast. I do think the like idea that a lot of them have of these instant offers is kind of a good idea and that might still play out, but I wonder how much they'll be trying to operate these businesses. Um, and I think the, the, the model definitely needs some refinement and it, in its current form, I don't think it will succeed. 
Well, speaking of landlording at scale, what do you think about some of the institutional players? Uh, some of them have scaled back their, their buying. A lot of them were buying massive amounts of single-family rentals in a lot of cities. It seems like some of them now are scaling back in certain cities, maybe concentrating a little bit, possibly because what you're saying, they're realizing that a far-flung portfolio is, is really hard to manage. Yeah, we are seeing them pull out, not in a super dramatic way. I mean, Invitation Homes, which is the biggest right. one, I think they were net sellers in Q1, but like by a couple hundred homes, which for them is not a significant portion of their of their uh, portfolio. I, I do think that most people overestimate the share of properties that these institutional investors own. By most estimates that I've seen, it's somewhere between one to three percent of the total housing market. And from data we have at Bigger Pockets, we we believe that 90% of rental properties are owned by people who have 10 units or fewer. So that is, uh, you know, mostly just small entrepreneurs. But that is on a national level. And I think if you, like you said, they are very regionally focused now. And if you are in one of those regions where they are super active, you're definitely going to notice it, like Atlanta or Charlotte or Phoenix. They buy up significant portions of individual zip codes and can really sort of dictate the market prices there and and, and really control markets. Um, so so that does really matter. I don't think they're going away. Um, I, I think they have big war chests. They are probably waiting a little bit for prices to come down, but they have better financing terms than everyone else. You know, they they can sit on losses for a little bit and wait for rents to grow. So I, I think they're going to be a little bit more focused, but that they will probably enter the market again as soon as they feel like the market has hit the bottom and they will probably help set the bottom. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based only on what you hear. I'm Deidre Willard. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.